We are in the book of Philippians right now. So this is a book in the New Testament. It's a letter that an apostle of God wrote to the church in Philippi. This was a village that was in the Roman Empire. And so we're working through this book just progressively over the coming months leading up to the Christmas season because we believe that it is a great book for a new church to start in as they're getting up off the ground. One of the big themes in this book is partnership in the gospel. And that's exactly what we want to build our church off of is a church with people that are partnering together to see the gospel get out and then to see the gospel get down into people deeply together. So we're working through this book to see that really take shape in the life of our church. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2 tonight. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter 2. If there's a hardback Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can grab that out. You can turn to page 1040 is the page that's on. The words are also going to be on the screen. So if you are able, I would invite you to stand up with me as we read the text aloud together. All right. So I'll read this. At the end, there's going to be a little phrase that I say. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. There's an underlying portion that says, thanks be to God. It's just a response to the beauty of God's word that he, this is a living and active word is what the Bible tells us. And so we get to hear from the goodness of God tonight. And so we just want to respond at the end of our reading. So you can, I invite you to do that with me. So here's, here's what we're doing. We're in verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it out loud. Then you can respond with me. I'll pray and then we'll dive in. All right. So here we go. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And this is what some people say is like one of the heights of all of the Bible that we're about to read who existing in the form of God, this is speaking of Jesus, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at it and we unpack it, we pray that you would come and speak to us through this word. God, we we need your word. We need to hear from you. And so we ask that as we open up and we wrestle with the truth, that you would come and you'd speak to us through it. I pray that you would use a weak, broken person like me to be able to talk about the Bible in such a way that it would bring clarity for us and that we'd be able to understand the goodness of this truth for us 
as a church. So we, we come, we pray these things, we bring these things to you, asking that you come be very tangibly present with us tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So last week I hit you with a Stallone and gave you a cliffhanger for this passage. So um, last week we were talking about this verse that's sort of like the thesis statement for all of the book of Philippians. So this is what it says. It says, as a citizen of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. And then as you tease out the verses that follow this, we find out that Paul is really trying to really get to the core of, hey, I want you to be a unified church. There's been some struggles that are going on inside of the church of Philippi. There's a, a couple of people that he mentions in Philippians chapter four, that there's some discord that's going on in their relationship and they haven't figured it out. And so Paul's saying, hey, be unified, be unified. Now, unity is something that everyone wants and everyone's trying to figure out how to get it. All right? This is something everybody wants unity, whether it's a corporate workplace, whether it's a school, whether it's a school body, whether it doesn't matter, like a neighborhood or such, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants unity. We're all seeking out to find a way that we can find unity. I think one of the best illustrations of this is the movie Remember the Titans. Everybody, want, everybody in here has probably seen Remember the Titans. If not, like, I'm about to spoil the movie. So, um, Remember the Titans is remembered for a lot of different things, right? So you think about like just the, chron the chronicles of desegregation. When the idea of Remember the Titans comes to your mind, you think about football, you think about great acting. But what the whole movie is really about is the struggle for unity. The whole, the whole entire movie is they're trying to get unity. And then once they get the unity, they're trying to hold on to the unity. That's what the whole movie is really getting at. And no scene better depicts this than the one where Coach Boone, that's Denzel Washington's character, he wakes up the whole entire team early in the morning. They wake up, they're all struggling to run down the street. They make their winds through the woods and they get to Gettysburg. And as they get to Gettysburg, he stops everybody. Everybody stops. You have this, like, it looks like smoke that's coming up off of the ground. Like, this whole scene, you get the background music. It's very, it's really intense, right? And here's what he says, all right? This depicts the whole, whole theme of the movie around this idea of unity. It says this. It should be up on the screen. If we don't come together right now, and you can hear Denzel's voice, right? If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed, just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, just maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. And it's kind of like this pivotal turning point for the whole team. You see this theme of unity really take with the team and they go back and they get back into their schools, they get back into the real world and they're struggling to hold on to this unity, this whole thing, this message Coach Boone is working to convey to his players is, look, if we can get over our differences, if we can get over our prejudices, if we can get over our biases, we can get over our preferences, if we do this, then we can accomplish something special. Well, as we pick up where we left off in Philippians last week, we see that Paul is arguing for the same type of unity 
here amongst the church. He says this in the very first couple of verses of our passage tonight. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Look, this is a plea from Paul that the Philippians would be united, that they would have unity as a church and that they would be united in their minds and in their hearts and in their spirits and in their mission and their purpose as a church. And this isn't just something that he's arguing for out of this rational argument. No, he's pleading with his emotions He's saying, look, if there's any encouragement in Christ, look, if there's anything that, as I came and shared this goodness of Jesus with you, if that actually took hold and took place in your life, look, if there's any consolation of love, if you have any sentiment towards me and this feelings that we say that we have for one another are true, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit of God, this Holy Spirit that's come and lived inside of us, if you have any affection or mercy for me, like he's saying, out of the emotions, look, work for this. Strive to be a church that's unified. That you get over the struggles and the confrontations and the discord that's going on inside of you so that you can become one. Look, this is serious business to Paul. And since it's so serious, Paul gives them the key in order for them to find this unity amongst themselves in verses three through four, which is where we're gonna begin this evening in this passage. So here's what I wanna do, all right? There's just two things, that, really three things that I just wanna do, all right? First, I wanna look at what is that key to unity that you find in verses three through four. And then what Paul does is he doesn't just give you the key to unity, he actually gives you a model for unity. And it's in the verses five through 11. And then I just wanna close out with some application, just a simple application for us as we close out tonight. So that's what we're gonna do. So first, let's look at the key to unity. I'll reread verses three through four so that we can all be kind of on the same page, all right? So here's what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. All right, so here's the key. The key to unity that Paul appeals for here is humility. This is the key. Paul's saying if you want this unity, then the key to it, the way that you unlock this unity that I'm calling for, is you are humble. Now, remember, Paul is writing this letter because the internal conflict that we just mentioned between these two women in Philippians chapter four, that's why he's writing this. Now, while we don't know the details of what that conflict is, we get a little bit of a glimpse inside the, the discord that's going on in, in these two different women um, through some of the statements that Paul makes here. So he makes a couple of positive neg- or negative positive statements here, the not but statements, right? So the first one is this, not selfish ambition or conceit, that's the negative, but humility. Then you get not your own interest, but the interest of others. So you're the negative, you have ambition or conceit or just thinking about yourself. On the positive, you have the humility and then the interest that you place of others above your own. So it would seem that the conflict 
that's going on in the church has something to do with pride and egos, with what we find in these negative, positive statements. Now, this has to sting for the Philippians a little bit, all right? This has to sting a little bit that he's kind of drawing this out in the way that he's doing because of things that we've heard him say in chapter one about some of these people that were preaching the gospel. So if you remember, he was saying, hey, there's, the gospel's getting out. Even though I'm behind prison bars, the gospel's still getting out. And he says that some are preaching with good motives. And then he says some are preaching with selfish ambition, the very thing that he's kind of laying out, teasing out here as some of the problems that are going on in the Philippian church. Here's what he said, verses 15 and 17. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So this has to sting. This Paul, that there's this sentiment for one another. I mean, Paul speaks so highly of the Philippian church, and then you get here, and it almost feels like he's going straight for the heart. Like, this, this has to sing for them. Now, Paul, here's why Paul's pleading. He's, ple- he's pleading, be unified. And then he's telling them, both, both them and us, the way that you get that unity is that, look, you lay down your pride. You lay down your ego. And look, you practice humility. Now, here, here's what I think we need to do from here, though, like, when we say humility, I think there's a lot of different things that come to our mind. There's a lot of different things, the definitions or ideas of what we think Paul may be speaking into this word humility. And so let's just think about some of these together for a moment, all right? So Gavin Ortland, this pastor, he wrote an article that I think I couldn't do better myself. So if there's anything that I, good that I say for the next few moments, it's probably coming from him, all right? So Here's what he says. He says there's three different types or ideas of humility that we think of with one only being the one that Paul is speaking about here in this verse. So the first one is this. The first idea that we can get of humility is actually hiding. That you hide your talents, you hide your abilities, you may even hide aspects of yourself, part of your story, things about your appearance, whatever it might be, you do this instead of exposing it or using it so that you don't look like a show-off. So and maybe for you, you're thinking humility is sort of hiding or refraining or kind of keeping down some of these talents or abilities or gifts that you may have. He uses this uh, idea of if you can throw a 95-mile-per-hour bas- baseball, and you're on a baseball team, and you don't let the coach know this, and you just sit on the bench, he's like, that can be a way that maybe someone thinks that they're being humble. But what he says is, that's not actually humility at all, because the focus is still on yourself. The focus is still on, look how much better I am than other people. There's this comparison that's going on between you and another person, and so in the midst of this, there's still this idea that I'm better than other people. And the thought process is still on yourself. There's a bias towards yourself. And so he says this, humility means the death of this craving self-referential framework. 
It means valuing your contribution to the world alongside every other good thing in the world. So the first aspect that maybe we may have about humility, this idea of hiding, that we have these abilities, we have these skill sets that we push down so we don't look like a show-off before other people, that's not what Paul's talking about here. The second one that you may have in your mind is self-hatred, that you think less of yourself, that you're not as great as others make you out to be, that maybe you beat yourself up or maybe you're tearing yourself down or maybe you don't take a compliment very well. Like you're thinking there's this self-hatred, you think less of yourself. So whenever um, I was in student ministry when I was in college, all right, so that meant I worked with teenagers. And um, while I was doing that, I remember one of the, probably one of the best compliments I ever got during that time of my life is I had a parent that came up to me and said that, um, my kid, I want them to be like you whenever they grow up. Now, um, great compliment, but here's the, here's the conversation I was having in my head. My conversation was, well, you obviously don't know me very well then. <laughs> I, I could only think of my flaws I could only think of the deficiencies. I could only think of the things that I would not want their kid to be like whenever they got to my age. They meant this great compliment, but for me, it was self-hatred, a tearing down of myself, a beating up of myself. Now, look, the Bible never says, hate yourself and instead love your neighbor. That's not what the Bible tells us. No, instead it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so self-hatred is actually still a sin. This no less, it's no less than like a hatred of someone else. It's like a suicide is still a form of murder. Like that, that's what's going on in this idea of self-hatred. It's not humility. It's actually still a sinful, thoughtful mindset. So here's, here's what Gavin Ortland says. He says, humble people do not regard their own existence as an evil They do not regard themselves as corrupting everything that they touch or wasting the space in which they move. They can walk about freely in the world with a bounce in their step. So if neither of these, hiding or self-hatred, is really what humility is, then what is it? Well, he goes, he gives you the third one, which I think is what he's, what Paul is speaking about here for us. He says, it's self-forgetfulness. Not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less is what Paul's really getting at here. This is why Paul is get, this is why he says that you consider others and that you regard others' interests above your own, that you're hiding yourself in hatred. Self-hatred are forms more of like this self-preoccupation. The thought process is still on yourself. You're not really thinking less you're, you're thinking less of yourself, but you're not thinking of, like, uh, what, what's the word? thinking of yourself less. That, that's what Paul is trying to get at here. And this idea, this true humility, it leads to freedom from thoughts of self altogether. Now, if you've heard a, a sermon or maybe even read some of his works, C.S. Lewis has this bit on humility that almost everybody references. All right, I'm going to reference it here. I'm going to show you why here in a second. So here's what he has to say. It's kind of long. I'm sorry. It's on the screen. Here's what it says. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. 
Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap, which I love that word. I'm a big chap and mate fan, so if you ever call me a chap or a mate, like, you'll be my friend forever. (laughs) Intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, I love this, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He'll not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Here's why I believe this is worth noting, even though you've probably heard this quote a million times. One, it serves an example of thinking of yourself less, and my neurotic tendencies need another example since I've given you examples of other ones. (laughs) The second one is that it serves sort of as a litmus test for what true humility is in your life. Gavin Ortland, he notes the word cheerful here. He says, this should serve as a reminder to us that joy is the true measuring stick of humility. He says, true humility always produces joy. Look, if we lack joy, we know we've got a counterfeit. Something is misfiring. So we can think of humility like this, self-forgetfulness leading to joy. That's what Paul's getting at here in his letter to the Philippians. That's this key to unity that he's trying to get across to these men and women that make up this church. Look, if you want to be unified, then it's not hiding, it's not hating yourself, it's actually thinking of yourself less and putting, considering others and placing their interest above your own. If you're going to be a unified church, then this is what it looks like. This is how you get there. I'm giving you the key. Like, Take it out of my hand. Put it into the door. Unlock it. Step through. This is how you get unity. So here's, I think, the question that all of us should be wrestling with. All right? Is this me? Am I the humble person? Am I the one that's thinking of myself less? Let me ask a few questions to maybe help you think through that, all right? Before I ask these, I love you, all right? (laughs) I love you. So here's the first question. When someone else gets recognition, are you prone to celebration or envy? Are you prone to celebration or envy? When others are celebrated, is your response delight or resentment? Second question. When it comes to working with others, are you prone to competition or collaboration? Look, I think there's a time and place for competition. I'm a highly competitive person myself. Like, love sports, love competing. But look, you cannot consider others or prioritize their interests if you're always in competitive mode. It's impossible. Like, you can't do it. So are you prone more towards competition or collaboration? Where, where do you fit there? Here's the third one. How do you handle receiving compliments? Are you deflecting? Do the compliments go straight to your head? Think really highly of yourself? 
Or are you thankful and just appreciative? And then here's the last one. How do you handle differences between you and someone else? How do you handle differences? Look, there's a lot of differences that are going on in our, our society, in our own lives, even in the life of the church. You have divides over things like vaccines. You have devices over masks. You have divides over the way that you should think about the color of your skin. There's a lot of different things that are going on. Here's the real question, though, if you're looking and seeking after unity, especially for us here in the church, how do I wrestle with these differences? What's my response whenever these differences arise? How do I treat someone else? Is my thought process to consider them and to place interest above my own, or is it hostility and, divide and division and fractions that take place? Like, how do you deal with those differences? Look, these are questions that we need to wrestle with as a, a, a brand new baby church. We have to wrestle with these things. Like, I, I want us to be a church that's unified, that we're together, that we're one mind, one heart, one spirit, that we have this mission and this focus that we not just came up with on our own, but something that we see commanded by Jesus himself to his church to go out and make disciples of all nations. Like, if we're gonna be that church then we've got to wrestle with these questions so that we be, can be this church that's unified. We've got to wrestle with these questions about humility. So look, we're going to recognize people here. I want a celebratory culture in the life of our church. The question is, how will we handle whenever our name's not the one that's mentioned from a stage or it's put on a screen? What's going to be our response? Are we, when we have these accolades that are put before us, are we gonna be a united church or are we gonna be a divided church? We're gonna be a church that continues to try to put the ministry of the church into your hands. I don't, I don't want this to be a top-down church. I want it to really be a, a, a bottom-up church. I want our people to be the ones that carry the weight of doing the work of the ministry here in the life of our church. So the real question is, are we gonna be a church that has a competitive spirit going after certain roles in the life of our church, or are we gonna work in collaboration with one another? Which type of church are we gonna be? What's gonna be your mentality? What's gonna be your mindset? Like, I pray that we work to encourage one another. Like, I... I don't want us to be a hiding church whenever you see someone that's doing something great. I want you to go up and encourage them. Like, we, we need this. It's called building each other up. Like, that's what it looks like to be the church. But the real question is, like, how am I going to respond when I get someone's compliment? Is it going to lead to entitlement? Is it going to be, I should have been in on this conversation? Or is it, I got to play a part i got to be a part of the work that God is doing in this city that so desperately needs Jesus. I, God used these gifts and abilities that he's given me. I, I'm blown away that I got to be a part and participate in that. Man, someone else even noticed and they came and they shared their appreciation. Like, is that going to be your mindset or is it going to be, I should be, I'm a somebody. I need, I need to be in the conversation. I should be making some of these decisions. What's the mentality? 
how are you going to deal when someone that looks different from you walks through our doors? Or walks through the doors of your home for a community group or a discipleship group? How, how are you going to deal with the differences? Different viewpoints? Are you going to fight for unity? Or are you going to stand up for your own interests and cause division? Like, these are the, we have to wrestle with this. You have to think through this. Look, if we want to be a unified church, if we want to be of one mind, one spirit, one heart, one love, the key is humility. Paul's handed, handed it to us in his hand. He's like, here, take it. Take it. Be unified. We consider others and we prioritize others' interests above our own. That, that's what it looks like to pursue unity, that you're humble. Now, maybe you have these questions that are going through your head, all right? Like, well, how far are we supposed to go with this then, right? Like, when do you draw the line in the sand of like, when, how far do I go in placing other people's interests above my own? How, how far do I go in considering them? Like, when, when do I think about me? You know what I'm saying? Like, you feel that internal struggle inside of you a little bit? Like, I felt it in me as I was wrestling with this. Wait, we get this model of humility in verses 5 through 11 that I think help us understand what it looks like to live this out. So let me reread verses 5 through 11 for you, and then there's two ways that I really think the model of humility has been placed before us in these verses, all right? So here's what it says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, look, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So we see two instances of humility in the life of Jesus that serve as the model for the extent to which we are to go in humbling ourselves and considering others and placing the interests of others before our own by our own Lord and Savior Jesus. So here's the first one. It's his incarnation. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Literally, Jesus traded heaven for human flesh is what Paul is telling us here. And now here's what we need to understand, all right? There's some complicated language in here that I think we can kind of miss in the English language compared to the language that the Bible is originally written in. So this does not mean, this idea of emptying ourselves or taking on the form of a servant does not mean that Jesus gave up being God whenever he came to earth. That's not what Jesus or Paul is trying to say through the Bible. This idea of form means more that you're actually taking on the full form of it, not that you're just taking on this notion of it. That's what Jesus and Paul are really trying to get across to us here. Now, Jesus didn't give up deity by taking on humanity. Here's what it means. He relinquished his rights and his privileges. That's what Paul is stating here, that when Jesus came down to put on human flesh, he wasn't denying being God himself, but rather he was setting aside his rights and his privileges as God. 
And he did this as a means of service for us, is what Paul is telling us here. So one pastor puts it like this, all right? So there's a a missionary that went to Africa and he was in one of these villages and he's ministering to this village and he goes to this certain village. There's an African chief that's there. And if you're an African chief, here's kind of the thoughts that are about this person. They're usually viewed as the strongest person in the entire village. You also have a robe and a headdress as an African chief, all right? And so he said, there's one day that one of the villagers was going to the water well. This water well is very deep. You have to go down into the water well. You have to scoop up the water, and then you have to climb up the water well with the water to take it back to your house. Now, this person went down into the water well, and while they were down in the water well, they broke their leg. They couldn't get out. And so what happened is the village kind of rallied around. They had people that went and tried to go down into the well to try to get them, this person out that broke their leg since they can't get out themselves. Nobody could do it. And so what do they do? They, they go to the chief because the chief is the strongest person in the entire village. And so the chief comes to the well. He looks at the situation. He looks over the situation, and here's what he did, all right? So to get down into the well, there's different, like, these crevices that are in the side that you kind of have to, like, there's steps that you have to kind of get down. So you can't get, like, a bunch of people down there. You just need somebody that has the strength to be able to get that person out. So here's what he did. He goes, he looks over the situation. He takes off his robe. He sets it to the side. He takes off his headdress, and he places it in someone's hands. He rolls up his pants. He goes down and steps on the crevices all the way down to the bottom of this pit. And he scoops up the person. He throws a person over his shoulder. And he takes this muddy, broken leg person all the way up, back up out of the well himself. And so this African um, missionary says that this guy, this chief, he thrust the broken man on himself and he carried him all the way out. And the chief did for the man what no one else in the village could do. The king became the servant. In the same way, this is what Jesus did for us by leaving heaven and coming on, coming down and putting on human flesh. He didn't put aside him being God. No, instead, he put down his rights, and he put down his privileges, and he came down in order to serve rather than to exalt and be over and to place, like, different charges on us. That, that's not what he came down to do. Jesus put aside his rights. He put aside his privileges by putting on human flesh in order to come and serve. Look, he didn't lose his identity, rather he just set it aside. He modeled humility through his humanity for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and the only way he could do this was becoming like us by coming down from heaven and putting on human flesh and showing us what it looks like to be a model servant in this life. That's a form of humility that Jesus plays out. That's what Paul is speaking of here when he came and he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant, putting on human flesh. He laid down his rights and his privileges. There's literally no task that was too small for him. He came with the opportunity to serve. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Now, Jesus' model of humility didn't stop at just the incarnation. He didn't just leave his rightful place in heaven and come down and put on human flesh. Rather, it was further through his crucifixion, which is the second aspect of humility that we see in Jesus' life. Now, notice in that passage 
who humbled Jesus? It was Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. No one stands above Jesus. No one humbles him. No, Jesus humbles himself. And he humbles himself to the point of death. Now, to understand the extent of the humility of this, you need to know a little thing, a couple of things about crucifixion, all right? So first, this is a Roman thing. This is a Roman way of death. But it was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was too demeaning for their own citizens. And then you have Jews that believe the person was cursed if they were crucified and they were hung on a tree. You see this in other passages like Galatians chapter 3. So both parties, for both parties, death on a cross was a complete embarrassment. Yet the high king of heaven, the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, endured the humility of the cross. And look, he did it so you and I don't have to. He stood in your place. He went and died a death that if you went to die, it still wouldn't accomplish what your end goal would be. You needed someone that could come and stand in your place that was the perfect sacrifice on your behalf, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He humbled himself in his incarnation, but it didn't stop there and went further to death on the cross, the most embarrassing death that you could experience for any person that was on the face of the planet at that form in time. And it wasn't something that we should, we should feel sad for Jesus about this because no one humbled him. This was his decision. He's the one that said, I'm humbling myself. He says in other passages, John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I'm the one that lays down my life for you. This is the extent of humility that we see in Jesus as our model, as the model that Paul lays before us. He says, this is the extent. This is the pattern. This is your way forward. The way that you act, the way that you humble yourself in the life of the church, it's Jesus that serves as your model. Look, Humility characterizes Jesus' relationship with us. And so the characterization of our relationship with one another is that same type of humility. Jesus is our model, and that's what our humility in the life of the church is to look like. That no task is too small for you. And that there's no extent that's too far that you place other interests above your own because Jesus put our interests far above his own, suffering the most embarrassing death that he could possibly imagine on the face of this earth. So look, how are we supposed to go to that extent? How in the world do we follow, follow such a model? Well, look, Jesus isn't just our pattern. He isn't just our pardon. He's also our power. God, so kindly, when we place our faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that he comes and makes his home inside of our heart. 
And so look, he's not calling you or he's not modeling something for you and me that he doesn't intend to give us the power in order for us to do that within the life of the church through himself. So look, it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go and do this. It's a lean on, depend on, trust in the power of Jesus in order to do the things that he's called you to do. That, that's what this is saying. So look, here's our only application. is imitate Jesus. You imitate Jesus. Look, before you can imitate him, you have to trust in him. John 15 tells us that you can do nothing apart from Jesus. And so he says the first thing that you have to do is you have to be in him. Meaning you have to trust in him, not in your good works, not in the good deeds, not in this good life that you've lived. None of these things can really offer or afford you the things that you need in order to have a right relationship with God. No, you have to trust completely in the life and work of Jesus on your behalf. And so what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is, no, you have to come and you have to be in me first. And as I come and make my home in you, I give you my spirit then you can step into this task of imitating me, the model of what it looks like to be a humble person in the midst of relationships in this broken world. That, that you have to do this. You have, you have to receive me. You have to be in me. And then if you do that, and you come to this place that you're in Jesus, look, to grow in humility, then the place that you start in thinking about how do I grow in humility is the foot of the cross. That's where this starts. Look, the question is not what would Jesus do in this situation if he were in my footstep, if he were in my place, in this differences that I'm experiencing, in this confrontation that I'm in, what would Jesus do isn't the right question. The right question is what did Jesus do? We had, and we don't have to guess here. We look at what Jesus did. He set aside his rights. He set aside his privileges. He humbled himself. No one humbled him. He humbled himself. He did it willingly. And he considered us to the point of death on the cross. So look, what did Jesus do? He laid aside his rights. He laid aside his privileges. That's our call. We, we consider others. We place their interests above our own. If you want to grow in humility, it starts by considering what Christ did, not just what Jesus would do, and then you imitate him with the dependence and trust in Christ that he gives us through the power of his spirit. So listen, if we're going to be a unified church, it starts with humility. This is the key to be a, being a unified church church. We don't hide. We don't hate ourselves. Instead, we increasingly become considerate of other people and their interests above our own. We think less about ourselves, and then we test this mindset that we have by the test of how joyful am I? What's the measure of joy in my life? And then we imitate Christ. We model his humility by laying aside our rights, laying aside our privileges. We serve one another and we serve to the extent that Christ served us by laying down his life for us. Like if we're going to be a unified church, then we gotta be a humble church. We gotta be a like Jesus church. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for you. 
Look, that's my prayer for me. Let's pray.